Chapter Seventeen, Part One of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Seventeen, Part One: Three Trials for Murder, the Tucker Peach Murder, nineteen ten; the Benson Murder and Arson, nineteen thirteen the wilson murder and robbery nineteen fourteen the tucker peach murder on june twenty ninth nineteen ten a dead body was reported to have been found in the bow river not far from the roman catholic industrial school at durbow a coroner was notified and in company with a mounted police constable from octocox visited the spot the following day the body had been washed against the trunk of a fallen tree in the river. Part of it, which was out of the water, was very much discolored, and the whole of it was considerably decomposed. When brought to land, there was found to be no head on the body. A shirt and undershirt were all the clothing, and these gave no clue to the identity of the man who had come to so untimely an end. No one was known to be missing, and after a somewhat perfunctory examination, the coroner issued his order for burial, and the remains were buried on the river bank by a couple of nearby settlers who volunteered to do the work. It happened that my wife and I were at this time on a month's holiday in British Columbia, and it was not until the month of November following that I first heard of the occurrence. In the course of that month, a long-distance telephone message informed me that a skull had been found in the bed of the river just under the tree where the body had been discovered, and that a hole in the forehead indicated foul play. Detective Sergeant Murison was sent to the spot. He found the skull as stated, and close to it, half buried in the sand, a blanket, cowhide, and two pieces of rope. These were matted together and frozen solid, and it took a long time to thaw them out. The skull had a small, clean hole in the center of the forehead, such a hole as could only have been made by a bullet, a piece of cotton batting in one of the ears, and a slight dent, apparently the mark of an old injury, received during lifetime some years previously, which extended both ways across the forehead from the centre. Obviously, the first thing to do was to find a name for the dead man, and to take that as a starting point for further inquiries. Gradually it transpired that one of the earliest settlers in that sparsely settled district a man who had been settled there for upwards of a quarter of a century had earlier in the year disappeared in a mysterious sort of way that is to say he had gone away without saying good-bye to sundry neighbours who were surprised at his omission to go and see them before he left it was common talk that he had sold his place and his horses to a young fellow who had taken possession but this unceremonious departure without a word rankled in the minds of the neighbours because there was no reason for it, and they could not understand it. The absentee's name was A.C. Tucker Peach, but he was popularly known as Old Tucker. A few neighbors, those who knew him, said from the first that the skull, with its few iron-gray hairs, its missing teeth and general contour, looked like Old Tucker. One witness subsequently deposed how the deceased man came by the wound on the forehead when a horse had kicked him in his own stable many years previously, and how he had helped dress the wound. The same witness said, speaking of the iron-gray hair, Many a time I've cut it. 
with the suspicion of a tear glimmering in his eye. The skull was sent to the provincial bacteriologist at Edmonton for examination, and very masterly treatment it received at the hands of Dr. Ravel. The body, which had been buried on the Bow River bank in June, was exhumed, but the cleansing and thawing of it for the examination took several days, and nothing was said about it at the inquest, which was opened on November 29th at Okotuk's. Dr. Ravel showed the coroner's jury how a bullet had entered the skull at the forehead, and after a somewhat eccentric course, had emerged at the inside corner of the left eye. He told the same story to two other juries later on, and they all believed him. The inquest was called for November 29, 1911, and on November 28, our position was this. We believed that we had evidence enough to convince the jury that the body was Tucker Peaches, and that he had been murdered by a bullet wound in the head. But as to how or by whom the fatal shot had been fired, we were in complete ignorance. We had not, however, been idle since the finding of the skull on November 12th. We had been searching high and low for Tucker Peach, and making inquiries as to his business relations with T. M. Robertson, the young man to whom he was alleged to have sold out. Robertson at that time was working as a brakesman on the Canadian Pacific Railway between Calgary and Medicine Hat, and we found ourselves depending exclusively on him for any intelligence whatever respecting his deal. Robertson had left word with the postmaster at Gladys to forward to his care at his Calgary address any mail that might arrive for Tucker Peach, and a report had in some manner become circulated that Tucker Peach had written to him from England where it was known that he had a sister living. On being served with a summons to attend the inquest, Robertson told us that he had bought the Peach Ranch of 160 acres for $26 per acre, half down, half payable in 12 months, that after the deal was made, Peach went to Carstairs, and from there to England, and that in the month of September, Peach had written to him asking how he would be able to meet the remainder of the payment. Immediately on receipt of this report, I sent a non-commissioned officer to Carstairs, but no trace of the missing man could be found there. Robertson was interviewed as soon as he returned to Calgary from Medicine Hat, and told a slightly different story. He said now that he had paid $1,000 down by a check on the Bank of Montreal, Calgary, and that the transfer had been drawn up by Peach's lawyer. He said that he had received his money by means of a draft from P. Coates and Company, and that Tucker Peach had written to him from Lancashire, where his sister was living. The transfer, he said, he had left at Medicine Hat, and he did not know the name of the lawyer who had drawn it. We ascertained without difficulty that his account of his monetary transactions was fictitious, but beyond that we had nothing to warrant our depriving him of his liberty, and my men had positive instructions to say nothing which might alarm him at all. Another report as to Peach's whereabouts, namely that he was in Stettler, was investigated and found to be untrue. There was nothing for it but to wait and see what the inquest might bring forth. On the day before the inquest was due to be held, Robertson duly started by train for Okotuks, about thirty miles from Calgary, but instead of stopping there went on to MacLeod, some eighty miles further south. Arriving at MacLeod in the afternoon, he went to a sporting house, where he gradually became maudlin under the influence of liquor, 
and eventually said that he was escaping from the police, that he had stolen about $75,000 in Alaska, that the police were after him, and that he wanted to catch the Spookany Flyer that night. The woman of the house wrote a note to the officer commanding the mounted police at McLeod, and Robertson was gathered into the fold. At the guardroom, where he was searched, the summons to the inquest was found on his person. A coroner's warrant was applied for and issued, and Robertson was presented in custody at Okotoks next day. He was feeling very much the results of his potations of the previous day, and was in no condition to withstand the grueling examination which he was called upon to undergo. In the witness box, he told a story different from any of his previous stories. He said now that he had bought two quarter sections from Tucker Peach, being 320 acres at $26 an acre, which price included the 20 horses on the place. This purchase money, to the extent of $5,000, had come to him by bank draft from Scotland to the Bank of Montreal at Calgary, where he cashed it for notes and gold. He did not remember the respective amounts of each, and so the silly story went on, until at last he was informed that the Bank of Montreal officials could and would be called to contradict his statements in detail, and he was asked if he had any explanations to offer as to the conflict of evidence between himself and them. His answer to that was, Well, I guess this is not the place to say it. I do not wish to say anything further. Inspector Dufus, the officer who was watching the case for the police, saw that the psychological moment had arrived. He obtained the coroner's permission to speak to the witness, asked the latter if he had anything he would like to say to him privately, and, on an affirmative gesture, took him to another part of the house. There, having given the prisoner the full caution and joined by the criminal code in presence of witnesses, he wrote down Robertson's confession and asked him to sign it, which he did. The confession briefly set forth that on the morning of King Edward's funeral, Robertson and one John Fisk had murdered Tucker Peach in his own shack, that they had wrapped the body in the dead man's blanket and cowhide, and with his own wagon and horses had carried it into the middle of the stream. The jury, of course, brought in a verdict accordingly, and the question was how to arrest John Fisk before he could be warned by his sympathizers. It happened that he had recently bought a livery stable in a new place called Carbon, about seventy-five miles from Calgary, in a northeasterly direction. It was after ten o'clock before I had heard and digested the reports made by the returning inquest party, and there was no time to lose. We had a detachment at Carbon, but the wires were down, and we could not communicate with them, in addition to which there was the possibility that both men might be away from home on patrol, so there was only one thing to be done. Soon after midnight of November 29th, the most powerful motor that I could hire in Calgary, containing two non-commissioned officers, crept quietly out of the city on its 75 miles run to Carbon. The men had positive orders to wait for the opening up of the stable in the morning and to take Fisk while he was engaged in his work, for he was well known to be a desperate man who would not scruple to use firearms if he had a chance. The arrest was effected without difficulty, and the motor discharged its passengers into barracks in Calgary by 1 p.m. of November 30th. Thirteen hours at five dollars per hour paid the motorman's account. 
Now that the two perpetrators of the murder were secured, there was obviously only one course to pursue in order to convict both men, namely, to use Robertson's evidence against Fisk and Robertson's confession against himself. Robertson never weakened in the stand that he had taken. On the contrary, he seemed to be anxious to tell all he knew. A great load seemed to have been lifted off his mind, and he never was dull or dispirited from first to last. He told the cross-examining counsel at Fisk's preliminary hearing that he was not afraid to meet his God, and even later, ten days before his execution was due to take place, before the news of his reprieve had been received, a fellow prisoner remarked of him that he was cracking jokes and laughing, and did not seem to realize at all the terrible position in which he was standing. But I am anticipating. Only one person was allowed to talk to him, and that was the officer to whom he confessed at the time of the inquest. To him, after he had been a day or two in the guardroom, he, Robertson, made an amplified statement, and this revealed such an extraordinary state of affairs that I reproduced it as it was given. This was not used in court, of course, and was intended for our guidance in hunting up corroborations of the story of an accomplice. As to the law on that very important point, I had many years ago, to wit, in the month of November 1889, clipped from the Weekly Times and pasted in one of my textbooks a little nugget of wisdom enunciated by the President of the Parnell Commission on Wednesday, November 13, 1889. There had been a conversation between the President and Sir Henry James as to the principle of law governing the admission of an accomplice's evidence, and the President disposed of it in these words. I rather regard it as a doctrine of expediency and prudence than a principle of law. Juries are strongly recommended not to act upon the uncorroborated evidence of an accomplice, but it has never been a rule of law. I may add that the corroboration required is only of the surrounding circumstances so as to lead up to a general presumption as to the truth of the evidence. It would be an absurdity to say, the italics are mine, that no evidence of an accomplice can be received unless corroborated by other independent testimony, because then there would be no need of an accomplice's evidence. Robertson's confession was as follows. The latter end of January 1910, I was working at Bob Beggs at the corner of the Bow and High Rivers. One day in February, Jack Fisk drove down with a team and bobsleigh to Beggs Place. Mrs. Begg, the two children, and I were the only ones there. He sold her a washing machine and a couple of patent fasteners for horse collars. This was the first time I met Jack Fisk. Two or three weeks after this, Old Man Tucker came down to the river at Beggs for water. He said Jack Fisk's pigs disturbed the water at the top of the hill, and he couldn't drink it. He took a barrel of water with him in his wagon. I rode the range for Begg for about a month, looking after the cattle, and one day I rode over to Begg's gate at the northeast corner of his place, where I met Jack Fisk chasing his milk cows into Begg's place. I had some conversation with him about some horses, and he told me that old man Tucker was getting after him about some horses, which he, Tucker, had lost. He said, I'm scared the old man will get me into trouble. And as Tucker had no friends and no relations and no one to take care of him, he thought it would be a good thing to get him out of the way. I said, If you have his horses, the old man is right, and you should get into trouble. He then said to me, If you will help me get Peach out of the way, 
You can have his land, and I will take his horses as I want them. I didn't say anything about this, as I was scared. He then threatened me and said, If you say anything about this, I will put a shot into you. I said nothing to anybody and rode home to Beggs, and he went on rolling his fall wheat. I used to meet him nearly every morning after this when I was riding, and he would ask me what I thought about it, and if I had said anything to anyone. We discussed the thing on and off for about two months until the last Saturday in April. I think it was Saturday when I came into town to see about my job on the Canadian Pacific Railway and stayed at the King Edward while in Calgary. Begg was in town and stopped me at the Dominion. The two of us went home on Monday. This would be the beginning of May. That afternoon, the team I was working got up in a bunch and got away from me. Mrs. Begg sent me up to the top to look for them. While I was up on the hill, I met Fisk, and he began talking about getting rid of old Peach, and said that if I helped him, I could have the land, and he would take the horses. He was to take them at any time he wanted them. I then agreed to help him. Two weeks after this, I went into Calgary and started working on the Canadian Pacific Railway as brakesman. I made a couple of trips and went out to Fisk's place the following Wednesday. Before going out to Fisk's, I hired a rig from Frank Passac, who runs a store at De Winton, and told him that I was going to drive to Tucker Peaches. When I got to Fisk's place, he sent me to Tucker's shack, about 300 or 400 yards away. This was Thursday afternoon. I helped Peach to clean his grain that afternoon and talked to him about selling his place and horses. He made a memorandum on a sheet of paper which is now in Medicine Hat in my box. The memorandum showed what he wanted for the horses, land, etc. I went back to Fisk's that night and slept there. Fisk and I agreed that night we would kill Tucker Peach the next morning. He was to fire the first shot and I was to fire the second. He wanted me to fire the first, but I wouldn't. The next morning, Friday, the day of King Edward's funeral, about six o'clock, Fisk and I went to Peach's shack and tried to look into the window. We couldn't see anything, as it was covered over with a tent. Note. The old man had an instinctive dread of Fisk, and on that account always fastened his door and covered his window. He would not have opened his door to Fisk. I knocked at his door, and the old man called, Who is there? I said I was there, telling him my name. He opened the door. He had his drawers and shirt on. He sat down on his bed, which was on the floor, and started to put on his trousers. Fisk then fired a shot at Peach with a revolver. Blood started to trickle down his face, and he fell back. Fisk handed the revolver to me and told me to do the same. I took the revolver, pointed it at Peach, and fired. I don't know whether I hit him or not. I was so excited but I guess I did. Peach never spoke. He was dead after the shot. We both came out of the shack and looked round to see if anyone was there, but there was no one in sight. We then hitched up Tucker's team and drove up to the door, rolled the body in some blankets, and drove it down to the Bow River at Tucker's lower place. We drove it into the river along the west fence on the west side of his property and dumped the body into it. The blankets and cowskin which we rolled him in were tied round him. The river at this point runs east. From what I heard, the body was found about a quarter of a mile from where we dumped it. After this, I came into town, having stayed at the Durbo School on Saturday night. I told some of them that I had bought the place. The team I took in were peaches. I sold them to the Alberta barn for $200, 
and put the money in the savings bank of the Bank of Montreal. I was to give Fisk any money he needed. I gave him two payments. One was $50 and one thirty. The amount show in my passbook. I went back to the ranch in about two weeks. I saw Ernest Adams there, and he told me that Fisk had been looking after the horses and that four two-year-old horses were missing. Adams said he thought Fisk had stolen them. I didn't say anything. Shortly after this, the body was found. Fisk, I think, was living on his place at the time, but shortly after this, left for Carbon. Shortly before the body was found, I brought one of Peach's horses into town and traded it for one belonging to Mr. Gilmore, the plumber of 827 Fifth Avenue, West Calgary. I sold the horses I got from him to a grocer who had a store east of the post office for $18. I gave him a bill of sale. I sold a stud about two weeks ago. My cousin sold it for me. My cousin is E. Davis and is looking after the place for me. He knows nothing about this affair. Fisk threw the revolver we shot Peach with into the middle of the river. Signed, Thomas M. Robertson. With these details to guide us, our next task was, of course, to verify the story. We tried first to find the revolver in the river. I sent Robertson with Inspector Dufus and others in a motor to the spot. The days were short. The distance from Calgary was about 25 miles, and nothing but a motor could cover the ground in the hours of daylight. Slush ice was found to be running down the river. The water was very cold up to a man's middle. It transpired that Robertson could not tell within a hundred yards where the pistol had been thrown in, and the party returned without having accomplished anything in the way of corroboration. The headless trunk was at this time lying at an undertaker's place in Ocotooks and was in process of being cleaned and thawed out. When it was ready, Dr. Ravel's services were again called in. He spent several hours with the evil-smelling corpse, and the thoroughness of his examination was manifested when he found the bullet which Robertson had fired tucked away under the skin, just over the eighth rib on the left side. In the shirts that were on the body, when found, there were holes corresponding to the situation of the bullet. Adhering to the thirty-two caliber bullet were some minute particles of the underclothing through which it had passed, together with a single red fibre from the blanket, where it had passed through a stripe. The indications were that the bullet had struck the floor and glanced upwards. Robertson had said that his hand was very shaky. In the floor of the shack, close under the bed, which consisted of nothing more than a few gunny sacks filled with hay, we found an indentation made by the bullet in its course. The corroboration of Robertson's story, therefore, in that particular, was complete. We had once before examined this shack in a search for the dead man's money. He was known to have a sum variously estimated at from $1,200 to $1,500, but nobody knew where he kept it. He would not entrust it to a bank, and we were able to place in the witness box only one man who had ever seen him with a large sum of money in his hand. When we first entered the shack, we found that it had been thoroughly ransacked and the money evidently found and carried off. We were utterly unable to place before Fisk's jury any evidence to connect him with the missing currency. But in April 1911, after Fisk's conviction, the one man who could have supplied the missing link permitted himself to talk to a neighbour, 
and I soon heard of it. It happened that he met Fisk at a little place called De Winton, and had supper with him at the Minto House Hotel. He saw Fisk pay for a twenty-five cent supper with a ten-dollar bill, drawn from a large roll of bills which he had in his hand. He was surprised to see so much money, as Fisk was notoriously impecunious. This incident is a fair sample of the difficulty we experienced in collecting evidence. John Fisk seems to have terrorized the entire neighborhood. It was no uncommon thing to hear a witness say, If Fisk gets off, I shall have to quit the country. It was some weeks before I could obtain corroboration of Robertson's story as to the conveying of the body to the river, but it presently transpired that a settler named Robert Jones, who lived between Tucker Peach and the river, was working at a fence on his quarter section with an Indian boy when the funeral cortege passed down the trail. Both he and the boy recognized the Tucker Peach team and wagon, saw John Fisk in a khaki-colored shirt, sitting on the front seat with the reins in his hand, and a person whom they took to be Robertson at the rear of the wagon box. A bitter controversy raged over this testimony when at length it was given, and desperate attempts were made to discredit it. One witness went the length of swearing that on a particular Sunday after church service he had had a conversation with Robert Jones, who had told him that he had not seen the team and wagon on the road to the river. This evidence was offset by a constable of the mounted police, who deposed that on the Sunday in question he spent the forenoon with Robert Jones, and that Jones did not go to church at all that day. It came out later, after Fisk had been hanged, that another settler and his daughter had also seen the team and wagon, as described by Jones and the Indian boy, but refrained from saying a word about it for fear of Fisk's vengeance in case of his acquittal. Both father and daughter had given valuable testimony, but suppressed this important item. After sentence of death had been carried out, as I have said, the father met a juryman at High River and said, Your conscience may be quite clear about the verdict you gave. John Fisk was guilty all right. He then intimated, in a roundabout way, affected by the denizens of the western states, that he and his daughter had seen the outfit, and that what Jones and the boy had said was true. Robertson was mistaken in telling us that the murder was committed on the day of the late king's funeral. It doubtless would have taken place on that day, but for the circumstances that, when Fisk looked round in the morning, he saw Ernest Adams, Tucker Peach's nearest neighbor, moving about on a hill between their two houses, which commanded a view of Peach's shack, and his attention would possibly have been attracted by any shots fired then. Robertson went to visit Tucker Peach that afternoon, at Fisk's suggestion, and found him fanning some barley, which he had contracted to sell for seed, and to fan which the old man had borrowed Adam's fanning mill. Robertson's evidence was to the effect that, after the barley had been cleaned, he helped Peach to load the mill onto his wagon, and he, Peach, returned the mill to its owner at about supper-time. Adams, on the other hand, deposed that his mill was returned to him by Peach at dinner-time midday. He said he couldn't be mistaken, because he asked Tucker to stay to dinner on that occasion, but the old man declined. Fisk was being defended by the most eminent criminal lawyer and K.C. in the province of Alberta, and he was not slow to make the most of this conflict of evidence. Robertson was in the witness-box for two whole days, 
and the learned counsel, in effect, said to him, You have admitted spending with Tucker Peach his last afternoon on earth. You killed the old man then, and now try to lay the blame on John Fisk. Herein, to my mind, lay the one chance that Fisk ever had of provoking a disagreement of the jury, and if his counsel had stopped, there a reasonable doubt might have been raised, particularly as we were unable to show the money motive on Fisk's part. But the difficulty settled itself. Lord Brampton, in his memoirs, gives an interesting instance of a counsel who did not know when to stop cross-examining, and in consequence lost his case. There was something of the same sort here. Cross-examination, prolonged, usque ad nauseum, presently elicited the fact that, in the course of the fanning operations, a man with a team and wagon arrived to fetch the seed barley for the purchaser, and took it away. He had to wait until the work was finished, and his evidence was conclusive proof that Robertson was right, and that Adams was wrong in saying that the milk had been returned to him by midday. This, too, disposed of the suggestion that the murder was committed by Robertson that afternoon. This evidence was all news to me. Nobody knew the name of the purchaser of the barley, and we were only able to secure his attendance at the last minute before the trial closed. From him we learnt the name of the hired man who had fetched the barley, and after extensive search found him near Montreal. He arrived just in time to give his evidence against Robertson, and deposed that the dead man had told him that he was in the process of selling out to Robertson. The trial of John Fisk began on February 21, 1911, and lasted ten days, forty-one witnesses being examined for the prosecution. The jury brought in a verdict of guilty with a recommendation to mercy. This was to salve the susceptibilities of one of their number who was not in favor of capital punishment and who required that concession. It had no effect whatever at Ottawa so far as mitigation of the penalty was concerned, and John Fisk was executed in the guardroom yard at Calgary on June 27, 1911. A Western politician once remarked in my hearing that he admired the mounted police, not so much for what they did, but for what they prevented. I wonder under which category such cases as this would come. Robertson's trial began on May 16th and continued four days. Forty-three witnesses were examined for the Crown and six for the defence. The jury appended a strong recommendation to mercy to their verdict of guilty, and the death sentence was in due course commuted to life imprisonment. There is no ground for any such supposition, but one might very readily believe that Robertson was acting under hypnotic suggestion. Sir Alan Aylesworth, the Minister of Justice, remarked to the Comptroller of the Mounted Police that these murder trials were the best worked-up cases that had ever come under his notice. End of chapter 17, part 1